You are now listening to the Two Dads Run podcast, just two dads who run, talking about running and being dads and some other stuff. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Two Dads Run podcast and this is Kevin. This is Greg. And uh, hello, we're doing a little bit different uh, today. I'm actually flying solo by myself. I don't have uh, Gray's beautiful blue eyes and brown hair. Two feet away my, from me. My eyes, are, my, my eyes are green, sir. Green, yeah. green. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a little, it's a little different. I'm actually, I'm sitting in my driveway in my Jeep, so with uh, with a pair of headphones on. We just couldn't get connected this week uh, to do the in person, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll do it this way for now, I guess. Yeah, you know what? And that's um, that's dedication to you and I both, because you know this this thing this thing we've been doing has been pretty fun, man, but. Being able for when we're both or one of us is tired, we're like, oh man, we got, we got to make sure we got to get this done and get this done, and you know, here we are, several episodes in, and we've been, uh, you know, just want to say, man, it's been pretty cool, been pretty consistent with it, and you know, we'll find a way, like right now, yeah, yeah, so. it has been fun. Uh, episode eight, so you know, we're getting there, we're putting them in, putting them in the books, but uh, yeah, no, it was cool. cool. There, well, one thing uh, happened. One thing happened this week. I want to talk about is that we joined the Y, which is right across the street from my house. And the very first thing we did, now I've never even set, set foot in the joint yet, but I have been to the pool. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know what? Maybe swimming some laps would be cool. So maybe after talking to Ben Canoe and hanging out with you and running with Chad, you know, all you triathlete guys, oh boy. I, think, I think maybe we may be inching closer to, uh, to getting, to getting gray in a triathlon. Dude, but, don't, we'll, uh, we don't, don't tease me like that, man. Cause, uh, it, it, <laughs> trust me. Hey, worst, worst case scenario. It's another training opportunity to kind of get in some, you know, get in some work when I'm, when the legs are feeling a little beat up and it's just a good cross training opportunity and maybe not so much of a com- competitive, uh, opportunity. Well, you know, your boy is a USA triathlon level one certified coach. So, uh, I just may hook you up with, uh, uh, maybe a good discount or something, but hell yeah, man. Well, you know where to, to, you know, come to for any questions about gear and stuff. Cause that's one thing too. I'm looking at right now is a new bike, new triathlon bike since uh, I've got all this time on my hands and still just kind of rehabbing the leg. But, um, I'm thinking about pulling the trigger here, maybe in the next couple of weeks, because about that time I could probably get on the bike, but uh, just want to have something a little lighter, something more maneuverable um, that I don't have to be too concerned about flying off a mountain in in uh, Chile. So, yeah, that would not be that. ideal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bike is really the bike is really the big scary component of of competing in triathlons. I mean, it's it's a pretty big expense. So you better be sure that you are serious about doing that sport because i mean some of these bikes cost three times as much as my first car so (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know it's 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 a big deal so yeah it's you know but the neat thing about cycling is if, if it's in triathlon or if it's not you see quite a few people doing i mean probably a large a large demographic um you know that 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 are older than than you and i and guys that are you know in their 70s and 80s and still doing it so 
you know, it's a, it's definitely a sport where you're not, it's like running where you're not putting all that wear and tear on your body. So yeah. you, you, you know, so you do the investment now. Yeah. But a bike can last forever. I think that's kind of the neat th- or the weird thing that I found out. You know, just haven't been in cycling for a while is that it's like, like the, like the car that you're driving, the, uh, the good old nice four door Jeep Wrangler, man, those, the resale value, you know, it, it holds itself and, and most bikes do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably something that I'll look into at some point. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you pull that trigger first for sure. <laughs> I've already got a couple saved for you, but anyways, uh, dude, that was, go, go ahead. You had something? No, no, that's, I, I know you sent me a couple already and I'm just, you know, just imagining how, uh, how we're going to make that work. <laughs> yeah, I know. If if Kristen wants to know like what your future purchases are or your hidden purchases, she just has to listen to this. <laughs> oh, Gray's got a bike coming up. I'll be looking out well, for that. Well, Ben Ben Canoe said he was going to send me one. He was going <laughs> to oh, get on oh. that. So we may have to reach back throw out ben to under the to bus, ben. man. <laughs> hey, hey, it's on record. Oh, what? Uh, it's on record you throwing him under the bus? No, it's on record him saying he, you know, he'd give me a, I asked if anybody wanted to donate a bike and he said he'd get right on it. So, oh. You know, we're, we're, we're like a week later and I, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> just just, well, just kidding, uh, man. Not <laughs> like he's looking at all. Yeah, he, I think his uh, weapon of choice is a Trek speed concept, if I'm not mistaken, but definitely a Trek rider. So if, um, if you took you up one of those, you've got a nice badass rocket. But yeah. hey, by the way, remember that race that he was telling us about? Um, the one in Utah. Yeah. So that's actually coming up this weekend, which is actually the 70.3 North American Championship. Um, so all the top. That's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah, it's, it's one where you've got, I'm pretty sure it's North American. And crap, you know, for my triathlete peeps, I'm sorry. I just... Haven't had much time. Like, was it the North American or was it the world 7.3? Anyways, the um, I think he said North American. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. I don't know why I'm overthinking, but yeah, you've got badass after badass actually is going to be up there. So, great man, what what are you so excited about with the podcast we have today? So, we have an awesome guest. I mean, uh, all of our guests so far have been awesome, but this guy is, um, has been a mainstay in track and field for 20 years. Huge inspiration to guys our age that are interested in running. I mean, this guy has performed at such an elite level for the last, you know, 20 years. And uh, he actually recently, back in January, became, uh, broke the record for most consecutive years of running a sub four minute marathon. So he, he just ran for the 19th consecutive year. He ran a four minute, a sub four minute marathon. I mean, that's just insane. So and I'm talking about Nick. I'm talking about Nick Willis. I mean, the, the guy is just a monster, um, a model of consistency. And we had, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to speaking with Nick because just, you know, such an inspirational dude. Oh man, Nick Willis is to you as Ben Canute is to me, and with you again, kind of the vice versa thing. So I, it was amazing when you first told me that you were able to connect with Nick, and he was more than willing to to speak with us. Bruh, I was like, hell's yeah, this guy is such a badass. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely kind of you know shoot your shot, but uh, I was really excited that 
you know, he agreed to come on the show with us and, you know, have a really great conversation. So let's get right to that. Let's check out the interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll see you on the flip side. All right, everybody joining us on the show today, we have arguably the most consistent presence in middle distance running over the last two decades. Uh, this gentleman is a two-time Olympic medalist in the 1500 meters, and that is just the start of a really long list of accolades for this guy. Welcome to the show, Nick Willis. Nick, how are you, sir? Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well overall. Right now, I'm actually pretty I'm tired. I've just finished a killer workout, and I'm on the floor in my basement stretching and eating peanut butter as we chat, so <laughs> please excuse my mouthful of um, of calories right here. No, absolutely. We, we appreciate your time. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, you have a long list of accomplishments and records, uh, which we'll definitely talk more about as we kind of progress through the, through the conversation here. But aside from that, you know, how would you describe yourself to our listeners that may have been living under a rock for the last 20 years? Um, I'm a kid who grew up in New Zealand, um, just like any old kid who played a bunch of different sports and sort of gravitated towards rugby and golf and athletics, which is track and field. And um, did basketball until I was obviously way too short to keep that going on. And <laughs> just like a, a pretty typical Kiwi kid growing up, but um, my family was involved in track and field. And so I... I um, put more and more time and focus into that, and it gave me the opportunity to, to travel the world. To run down under has a bit of island fever. We want to see what the whole big world, wide world has to offer, and that brought me to the states on scholarship to the University of Michigan. I've now raced on every continent on the earth except for um, the, the the poles, um, and I've managed to to make a ton of friends along the way, and um, it's it's given me everything that I know and. Um, so running is a huge part of my life, obviously, but I'm also someone who um, suffered a bit of um, family tragedy at a young age. When I was five, my mom died of cancer, um, and so that, that really shaped a lot of who I was as a child, and I, I really felt like I was in a fight against the world to a degree, not in a necessarily in an angry way, but I wanted to make a name for myself and show that that wasn't going to impact me or limit, it, limit me, and that was a huge motivation for me to always need to be the best at everything I tried and to try and put my, my head above the crowd, so to speak. And um, when I, I sort of was also running from the grief of that for many, many years, I didn't ever sort of deal with the, with her loss until I was 20 years old. So 15 years of running away from dealing with my mum's loss. And at that time, it also um, brought me back to my family's faith as Christians. It's something I had run away from. And I um I stopped being angry at God for allowing my my mom to die at, when I was such a young age, and I I came to peace with that, and I um and I accepted um many of the same um views as my family had always held um as Christians, and so I became a Christian when I was a sophomore in college, and that has also shaped a lot of who I've become and tried to become as I got married and became a dad, and now I've got two young kids and. It's also tried to shape a lot of my outlook on why I run and what motives I have. And sure, I'm, I enjoy the success and all of the rewards that come along the way, but I always try and um, reflect back like there's, there's a greater purpose to what I do. And I hopefully there's still a, a purpose for me running at 38 
it hopefully it inspires, but also shows people um, how to look after one's body um, to quite a, a, a fine, um, acute detail that running requires. Even in your late 30s, you can still do that and treat your body like a temple. So yeah, that's, that's sort of a quick summary, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're you're certainly an inspiration for Kevin and I. I mean, I'm 38. Kevin, I think, just turned 39 recently. Um, so to be able to see somebody like you who can still perform at such an, an elite, an internationally elite level, is is certainly in, you know inspirational for us. And I you know, really appreciate you sharing uh, that about your your mom and kind of your path. So you you talked about a lot of different sports. Was it kind of that you know mentally therapeutic side of running that was maybe why you you stuck with running and kind of let those other sports go or was it just you know because you were just better at running than everything else oh i definitely enjoyed competing and um i loved like at school i remember in elementary school what we call primary school in new zealand like you'd like always line up the fast kids who see who's the fastest or sometimes we'd like have visits with other schools all the kids from your school would walk over to the neighboring school a couple of miles away and then during the lunch break, they would like, all right, who's your fastest in your school? And they'd bring three or four kids out and line you up against <laughs> them. And the whole the whole school is sort of like line the, the soccer field and then like cheer you on and be like a big match race to see who the big dog was. Like, even though running, running as, as a sport wasn't necessarily big in New Zealand, that's just what kids gravitated towards. It was like the way to see who had the status, I suppose. So I was always the marquee person that, wrecked my school that way and I enjoyed that element of it. I did love the team sports, basketball and rugby but um, as I got older the politics of team sports really frustrated me to no end and I always probably had a higher view of my own ability than maybe what I was and so I would argue with my coaches or the people the selectors about positions that I got placed in or my playing time and all that sort of stuff and I enjoyed that I basically got to dictate my own terms as a runner that there's, there's no way politics really gets in the way. It's like everyone's on the start line, everyone got a chance, and who's willing to put themselves into the death box that is cross-country racing or the 800 metres the most is um, is going to come out triumphant, and you can't be angry at anyone else. It's, it's totally up to you, and I enjoyed that, that um, putting all of that weight on my own shoulders and not being dependent on others. I, I think I did enjoy that individual element to it. Yeah, I love that description, the, uh, the death box, because... That's yeah, exactly I've never heard that before. Cross country in the eight hundreds. Gray and I were both on our uh, on our state championship four by eight relay team, and that was one of my favorite events. But then cross country, yeah, you've got you know kids lined up from all across the the, the state, and then sometimes across country, and it's just I mean the best man win. And you know, I I, I miss that type of lineup, but um, probably just kind of like the same like with you throughout the years. You know, that that competitive piece has just always been part of you. And you just, and correct me if I'm wrong, the reason why I continue to do is I just love testing my body and not know so much to, you know, to see how it compared to others, but just when, when the race is done, it's like, wow, I can't believe I was able to push myself to, to do that. But I just kind of want to back up. So New Zealand, my wife, so my wife is actually born and raised from Indiana. So I'm very familiar with the Midwest. We still go out there quite a bit to travel and, and to see our family. So New Zealand to Michigan, how did you select Michigan out of all the universities in the country? I'm sure you had an opportunity, uh, but how did, how did you select University of Michigan? Well, my brother is eight years older than me. We actually share the same birthday, um, which is pretty remarkable. And, and he also, Steve, is, I believe. 
Steve, yeah. And he has also run a sub four minute mile. So he really was the one who paved the way for me. He was setting all of the, the junior records when he was seven through 15. And then there was, there was the times that I sort of aimed for, for our local city sort of at track and field competitions. But he went over to, on a scholarship to a D2 school in Colorado called Western State College okay. in Gunnison. And there basically was a pipeline of New Zealanders who had gone. A coach had built a relationship with a few local coaches in New Zealand. And back then, before the internet really took off with, with track and field, like once you get one athlete, then they tell their friend and then they tell their friend and sort of like year after year that happens. Um, but in those instances when athletes would only go to four or five different schools around America, there were only a handful of schools that sort of had that connection to New Zealand. They built this um, prevailing sentiment might be the best way to describe it amongst New Zealanders and Australians probably as well. And the local um, running fraternity that if, if a high school kid went off to the States on a scholarship that they would get sort of expected to race three times a week at these dual meets that they used to run in the eighties and nineties and um, sort of you have to earn your scholarship, so to speak, and run a ton of races all the time and you'll be used and abused and never heard from again. Um, And so I everyone was sort of trying to, they were very protective of sending athletes overseas and trying to, stop you at, at any cost um, from leaving because they were worried they'd lose you from the sport um, when they wanted to keep the numbers up, which were struggling anywhere in New Zealand. But I, um, as a huge track fan myself, I would, every weekend I would venture on the train into the city. I lived out in the suburbs and I'd go into the capital city of Wellington and there was one magazine store that sold track and field news um, in all of the whole city. So I'd probably venture 45 minutes just to go read this magazine because it would have the list of all of the high school top performances in America each month. And so that was my way of like finding out what other kids my age were doing around the world. This is before the internet sort of was telling us with all these updated lists every day, right? And on the, on the cover of one of these magazines was the, was, um, the finish of the NCA mile in which Kevin Sullivan won. And it was this race where Brian Berryhill was the runner for um, Colorado State, um, he had his arms in the air celebrating a victory, but Kevin Sullivan dipped under his arm on a big lunge. So Brian Berry, who had celebrated too early, and Kevin Sullivan um, out-dipped him, and he had this big block M on his shirt. I thought, man, that's really cool. And that that picture really like etched into my mind. Like I knew about the block M at that stage for Michigan. And I knew of Brian Berryhill because he had come to race in New Zealand a couple of times in our um, summer track series, which is during the American um, winter break. So I, that sort of, I just, for whatever reason, I knew about those two athletes from that point on after studying that magazine cover. Then maybe three or four years later, I was watching the Sydney Olympics and Kevin Sullivan from Michigan ended up finishing fifth in the final um, at the Olympic Games. So I was like, wow, I have no idea who that guy's coach is. But if he was an NCA star winning the mile and then after college still was running at the top of the world, finishing fifth at the Olympics, his coach must know what he's doing. He must know how to like still have him run well in college and get points, but also have a successful career afterwards, which wasn't very common in the 90s in America. Um, and so I thought I got to be coached by his coach. So I had no idea who that was, but I wanted to go to Michigan at that point. And so... I found out his the coach there, his name was Ron Warhurst, and I emailed him and never heard back from him. 
um, <laughs> at that at that time I'd run like a four eighteen mile and maybe a one fifty two eight hundred. But then seven or eight months later, I ran a four hundred one mile and a one forty eight eight hundred. And the very next day, um, Ron Warhurst called up John Walker, the great New Zealand miler, the Olympic champion. He got his phone number and said. John, this is Ron Warhurst, University of Michigan. And John Walker's response right away was like, I know who you are, and he's not for sale. Um, <laughs> except he used a New Zealand accent, not an American one. Um, he says, I don't want to buy him, I want to coach him. And so um, Ron got my number and told me that story, and yeah, that, that's basically how it's happened. And so I started watching Home Improvement every day on TV to learn about the state of Michigan after that point. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> wow. And um, it turns out that my father-in-law is pretty much the combination of Al Borland and, um, the, and the guy over the fence. Um, so it's worked out pretty perfect that I've gotten to know Michigan that way. That's, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. an awesome story. Hey, for the record, Kevin's last name is Sullivan. So, Oh, really? You're Kevin Sullivan. Yeah, right? so I was going to say that. So. Kevin Sullivan, though. <laughs> and, of course, now Kevin Sullivan is the coach at Michigan, so he's sort of taken over and kept the tradition going. So sort of that's full circle right there. Oh, yeah. So Do they still a... have the pipeline of, of New Zealand athletes? Uh, Ron recruited a, a few more New Zealanders. Kevin's now got a couple of Australians. But it's a totally different world now with the internet. You can sure. see the results of every race. You're, the whole world is a recruiting pool. Um, it's not just through word of mouth anymore yeah i mean for us coming up when we were running you know being here in kind of the south or mid-east mid-atlantic region we had alan webb and everyone knew who alan webb was so you know he would show up at some invitationals here and there and so that was kind of our big you know because again we're the same age as you are and it just we didn't have that so everybody kind of knew the regional guys and the bigger names um you know just locally and of course, Alan went to Michigan the year before I ended up getting there, like, cause my recruiting process was like a year and a half. And so that, like, there was a lot of hype around the program because of Alan sure. and all of that. But the way that I, when you're talking about the lack of information, I joke with my competitors now. I'm like, you know how old I am? When I was a freshman in college, the first paper I handed in, I wrote on paper. I didn't even type it out. Um, I hand wrote it. And, um, whereas that was unheard of now for college. Oh, freshmen. yeah. To, to handwrite a paper that they hand into the professor. Oh yeah. Uh, so as a, as our name as the name of our podcast suggests, you know, Kevin and I are both dads, and, and we like to spend some time talking to our guests that have you know children about their families, and you know, we know that you mentioned earlier you have two kids. Uh, what has been some of your you know some of your proudest or best moments as a father so far? Yeah, I've got two sons. Lachlan is um, seven and a half, almost eight, and Darcy is. Um, it turned three in January. He's a boy, um, and they're both wild and um, uncontrollable, but uh, also <laughs> very sweet. So it's it's been a, it's been an awesome ride. Um, I think, firstly, like as a dad, it took me it, like the big game changer for me was probably I don't know thirteen months after my first child was born. I think up to that point, there was a, a big part of me that, even though I didn't want to admit it at the time, I felt like. I was being limited in my life because like all of the things I couldn't do because I've now got these responsibilities and the time commitments and like, I can't go play golf now. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I really focused on what I was missing out on. 
Um, and that the big light bulb moment was when I suddenly like started taking a huge amount of joy in the things my kids was interested in. And maybe it was because he became older, so it was more evident to me that what his interests were. It was harder for me to read like a four or five month old baby, right? Sure. Um, and so that was that. Ever since that moment, it's been such a joy. Like I, I might play golf once every three years or something now, and I don't care at all because, like, I whatever my kids are interested in, it's like that's the funnest thing to be a part of. And so it's really just. Um, switching a perspective of that, that has really, that really revolutionized my experience as a, from how I enjoy being a parent, but I'm sure that probably projects also towards my kids enjoy it more because I'm interested in their things as well. So that's, that's probably the first thing that I'd, that I'd state. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's very valid. I think that's something that's not talked about enough is that, you know, people expect people that don't have kids or are, or about to embark on that. They just expect this child to be born and there's going to be this immediate bonding process that happens. And, you know, especially from a father's point of view, you know, those early days, that child is so dependent on mom, you know, for so many things, um, especially if it's a, you know, a breastfeeding mother and things like that. So, you know, it's harder for us as fathers to sometimes build those bonds and to, you know, undergo that life changing moment. And I think that's something that's not talked about enough, but it is very valid and fair. You know, it does take some time. These things aren't always immediate. And that doesn't mean that you're not as good a parent as the next person. But, you know, it's hard to know when they're when they're so young and so, you know, so small and there's not a ton of personality there yet. You know, it can be hard to, to form that bond. So, I've, you know, I'm, thank you for bringing that up. And, and it's not that they weren't, significant moments that I didn't enjoy like one of my favorite moments was the times when they're so tired when they're so little that they just are asleep on your lap this tiny little human in your lap and like that's the sweetest moment ever but in terms of actual like I'm an activities person I like going out and doing stuff um and so that yeah that was the, the big game changes for me so for us as a family like um, we always give it a go and we, we take part in a whole bunch of different things. I played a ton of different sports when I was a kid. So like I've tried to expose my son, my older son, especially to as many different things as possible. Sometimes he's shy and nervous to show up to something, but like, Hey, if you don't like it after a couple of times, it's fine. We never have to go again, but you have to at least give it a go. So we've tried everything. And um, the things that he gravitates towards now is, BMX racing, like I would have never thought of even thinking of BMX racing, but it's the funnest sport ever. But it was the only sport that was going on during the pandemic last year, so we took that up, and now he loves it, and he loves his basketball, and he's also into rock collecting, and he wants to become a geologist in his mind, and he likes collecting toads and making terrariums for spiders and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of things that I'm learning which I would have never thought about before. So that. That's probably the most fun thing. I probably pushed a little hard trying to get him into skateboarding because that was my thing as a kid. And he, he doesn't mind it, but I realized like that's my thing more so than his thing. I was going to say that that is a tricky thing too, is where you're, you're trying not to drive your passions onto your kids because they're your kids and why wouldn't they like it? You like it. And, and especially something that you do so consistently and something that's just always out there for them to see with the running piece so you mentioned the BMX, your son definitely loves the BMX have, you know, especially the seven and a half year old, has he started to, to go run with you? Have you started to get 
him involved with some of your training or at least kind of get him somewhat acclimated to the running scene by, Hey, it's, it's in your blood, it's in your genes. So if you want to learn, now's a good time for you. Have you started to do that yet? Well, I'll say this is that I actually never went for a run until I was about 16 or 15. Oh, wow. Um, I ran track and I competed in track ever since I was four years old. Like I raced the 60, the 100, the 200, shot put, high jump, long jump, all of that stuff, discus. And I loved it. I did it as a sport. We had a club night once a week and a competition every second weekend. But I never trained for the sport of track and field until I was 15 or 16. Um, And so I've always felt really strongly about that. And the beauty of track compared to... Well, most, or at least especially running, compared to most sports, because it's not a school sport, it's not something that you have to do at a young age in order to have a chance at being good at it later. So I've always been of the belief, like, try and do as many other activities as possible and keep them away from running as much as possible, because the number one reason why most of us run, especially like in the masses, when you see these major marathons and all of these thousands of thousands of people at these, all these events, there's like a huge component of delayed gratification involved in running. It's one of the ultimate exercises to like experience like what delayed gratification means. It personifies it. You put on all of this hard work, the daily, weekly, monthly, and then the the actual work during the race. And at the end, you finally get that satisfaction afterwards. But kids have a much harder um, ability to, grasp that concept of delayed gratification they need rewards a lot more immediately and i don't believe running really gives that um whereas a lot of these other team sports can do that so i would i would prefer to sort of yeah for him not to do that but i I never tell a kid not to run if they want to but i would never ask them to do it like i never think it should be prescribed to them per se um but secondly because my wife is one of my coaches and because we homeschool and because it's been my job for the last forever, <laughs> the last so many years, like my kids and my wife are at every single one of my workouts and every single one of my races. So at the World Championships in Beijing, when my son was three in the 2015 World Champs, my wife was my coach there and the, um, at the warm-up track on the athlete bus going from the village to the track to the stadium. So my son's been around that world. He's been in the dining halls at the Monaco Golden League. He like he's all of the Kenyans will pick him up and pass him around and um, play with him. Like so, he knows all of the professional runners, and he's like that's the world that he's immersed in, and it's just normal for him. And so, sure, he will like go and time himself to run a lap every now and then, but it's never something that comes from my end. Um, but mostly, he just comes down to the track and he likes to see my coach because he brings donuts and chocolate milk and. <laughs> <laughs> my my coach's son is 18 now and he went through that whole process from the day he was born he was down at the track every day for practices when we were there and it's such a cool environment for kids like we would always throw the ball for him or play games like from when he was two all the way up to now he's 18 but now he's now hanging out with us he's not a runner he's a race car driver and he actually films like he does a lot of the um videography for our training group he's down there at the track playing with my kids so it's sort of become full circle so the track is a fun place it's a safe place that's fenced in where kids can sort of go explore and you don't have to worry about them being hit by cars and stuff but they have a pretty big area to like go fun in the long jump pit and 
or over at the water jump at the, the stable chase or just go play in the grass or on occasion, I guess, race someone on the track as well. That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure that you haven't made it 30 minutes into an interview over the last three or four months um, without being asked about the, your, the streak. Uh, so for our listeners that don't know, Nick in January became – the first person to ever run a sub four minute mile for 19 consecutive years. Um, I mean, that's amazing. How, how do you think you've been able to be so consistent for so long? Uh, I'm sure there's a huge amount of luck involved in it. Like um, one might look at that streak and think, oh, he's had a huge amount of luck of being healthy for eight, 19 years. But the truth is like, I've had five surgeries. I've had my hip, my knee twice, a uh, hernia. I've had a bunch of pulled um, muscles. I've had uh, about seven stress fractures over the year. I've missed significant time out of my running. Wow. Um, but so I've been fortunate that nearly all of my injuries have been ones that are like conclusively injured. Like, okay, you need surgery. You have a stress fracture, a pulled muscle. You have to take time off. And then there's like a prescribed rehab protocol. Whereas people who have Achilles tendonitis or like these nagging sort of like knee tendinopathy stuff, it's like they're half there, half not. And so that just drags out for years and then you never get to realize your full potential. Mine's like, all right, take three months away from the sport, go live life, come back, and then start getting back again. And so I've been fortunate that I've had nothing that sort of nags or drags me out and I think that wears on people mentally that it just makes them eventually want to quit. Like it's not worth it anymore. Just running in pain. I've never really had to like run through like nagging or, gr- or dragging out pain. And I've had really, really good Achilles tendons throughout my whole career. And I think that's the Achilles is the Achilles heel, right? Mm-hmm. It's, that's what, um, what ends up taking most people out, especially in their later years. Um, because of that nagging and so because I got super strong Achilles like I'm still able to bounce off the track on my toes pretty well at 38 still and hang out keep up with the young kids in the sprints and all that sort of stuff so yeah there's a bit of luck involved but I also got to be honest like because my very top end ability is like my 1500 meter PR is equivalent of a 346 mile I've got a little bit of wiggle room so even though I've aged or gotten older, I've had years where I've been less fit because of injury. I've got a 13-second buffer to still sneak under four minutes on a bad year, whereas other people who might at the very ceiling be a 3.56-miler, they've only got three seconds wiggle room to set for everything to be perfect every single year. That'd be much tougher. So I think that's probably a big factor as well. That's why. So... I'm not sure if you've been called yet, but we were called not too long ago on the show, middle-aged men. And the one I thought about, I was like, my goodness, you know, I was th- you know, 39. And I'm like, I guess I'm getting to the middle-aged man. And I'm starting to, to realize there are certain things within my training or within my races that I, my body literally is, is, is not what it was capable of doing before. So I just, a couple of weeks ago, I just finished a hundred mile ultra marathon and I knew that was going to hurt like hell. And it sure did. It put me in a walking boot for two weeks, but usually I've always been quick, even up until last year to rebound from those type of injuries pretty quickly. and can get back into it, but I'm still having this nagging injury and my bones are like aching and cracking that haven't been before. 
So you being at where you're at kind of with our age and with the wear and tear that you've been putting on your body, but still running at a very high level elite. Nick, so have there been anything within the last couple of years or maybe within the last year where you start to, where you've kind of had that aha moment in your mind where oh, age is actually starting to settle in. I, I can no longer do it like this now. Has, has there been anything where you kind of just thought about it and kind of even laughed about it? Like, man, I can't believe it. It's finally happened that I can't do that now, or I can't do it as well now. Yeah, I think there's several components to that. On a positive side, I feel like I've become a lot wiser over the years. Um, a lot. Of, I've actually been the most healthy I've been in my whole career the last three years, and I think that has like the the things that I've learned and the wisdom and the, how to understand my own body far exceeds the potential. Um, frailness that might have developed over the last five years as being an older athlete right and i think the number one reason pretty much the sole reason for any injury is when you expose whatever the tendon the bone the muscle whatever it is to a greater load than it's been accustomed to being ready for and our body will adapt if you slowly increase the exposure of load load can either be like the amount of volume whether it be miles per week or a straight up amount of force like if you suddenly try and squat 300 pounds when you've only been doing 100 like that's a big adjustment you need to go 105 107 110 like you need to do gradual adaptation to let your body like make that transition and i think as i've been older i've been far less likely to suddenly do something that my body hasn't tra like transitioned to get ready for so I'm, I'm always a lot more cognizant okay if i'm going to start doing some really fast track work and three months time when March rolls around, I'm going to start doing some really fast stuff. So I need to know from December onwards, how do I smooth out that curve between December and March so that my body will be ready to do that. And so that it's not a sudden jump or a sudden shock to my calves or my Achilles or my hamstrings, like whether it be in the weight room or on the sand pit or all these different other areas. So like every single day I'm, I'm slowly exposing my body to those loads has helped. The thing, the big aha moment that you talked about that I probably had was I was in denial about it perhaps for the last three years, but the pandemic and the cancellation of the Olympics probably allowed me to finally move the goalposts in terms of my performances. Before, I used to just get so frustrated. 2018, 2019, I was just so frustrated after every single race and like, what's wrong? Why can't I hit the same times I was doing and I was just being... I was just really angry after every race. It wasn't fun because I had still kept the same goalposts as I had when I was at my very best. But with the Olympic year being cancelled, it allowed me to say, okay, you may not be at that level anymore, but what is a realistic level you can aim for? And now that I've shifted those goalposts, I can actually cross that finish line and know whether I've achieved my goal or not. And there's a greater likelihood that I have so I can walk away like feeling really positive about that experience. And the streak of sub four minute miles was a really tangible goal that I had, which was something that I well, was achievable, but still meant a lot. And it kept me excited for for training. So it enabled me to derive joy from training again, that there was actually value coming out of my results. It wasn't just training to be angry at the end of these races that I wasn't happy with. So, I mean, was there anything I've, I've heard you, I've heard you refer to that as kind of a recalibration of your, of your mental game. Um, and that, that can be really hard to do. And we've talked to some, uh, we talked, like I mentioned earlier, we talked to Kira D'Amato who 
kind of came on later. You know, she came back to the sport after a big hiatus in, you know, in her mid thirties. Um, you know, when we were talking to Thomas Newberger, talking about, you know, beginning running later in life and how it can almost be better because you don't have these PRs from your like early twenties to go against. So it can be really hard for a lot of people to kind of say, okay, maybe I'm not capable of, you know, I think you mentioned at one point not being able to run a, a 350 mile anymore, but now, you know, setting, resetting those goalposts for yourself. Was there like, was that a, kind of an immediate thing or just something that you kind of had to work on over time? No, I think because the pandemic happened and I like lost all motivation for racing, I almost started from scratch and worked backwards and I just allowed like, okay, let's not have any like goals and then just, just race and see and like not try and keep up the very best in the world, start low and then slowly build up again. And the truth is even at my very best when I was winning medals, each year I would actually start off by doing like a really low key college meet at Eastern Michigan University normally or some low key meets in New Zealand and slowly like build up my season that way. So I, I started doing that again. Um, and then I started to realize, okay, this seems like a realistic goal and this would be a great, achieve, a great, um, result if I were to get it. And so now I, I've sort of come up with some numbers, which we think, uh, based on my training are more realistic. The thing I seem to struggle most with now is sort of processing the lactate when if the race goes out fast at the start i seem to still be able to close well on a tactical race but if it's a hard from the beginning like i get myself i cross that red line a lot earlier in the race than i used to um and so that's there's some physiological um things that my body isn't quite i'm um, doing at the same high level that it was before that's probably um, what I've noticed the most, but it's it's not necessarily something I can physically tell in terms of my muscles or anything like that. Sure. Have you have, have how many times have you raced this year, if at all? And do you have more upcoming? I actually um only raced once last year during the well once the pandemic happened after March, um and I had no interest in racing partly because my one time getting it, you had to get two COVID shots, two COVID tests the week of the race and I both of them were like brain ticklers that went way up super deep and I was like oh, this isn't worth it <laughs> um, <laughs> especially when I didn't race well but then this year I ended up racing seven times in seven weekends and during the indoor winter season some of them were outdoor races down in Florida or Alabama or California um, but yeah I, I really enjoyed racing again and partly because I managed to find a place to get um, self-administered COVID test, so I didn't have to go as deep. Um, but partly because I had finally accepted that it's okay to have a different goalpost anymore again. And I and I missed traveling. Like I, I've been traveling for the last twenty years, so often it was, it was sort of something I hadn't done last year. So running was a good excuse to be able to do that. That's great to hear. So it sounds like time, the, the amount of time off, if it was for an injury or. Unfortunately, last year where it hit everybody with the pandemic has has really continued to just bring more life and joy into you and into the sport to to be the better athlete, but then to be the better husband and father. So that's cool. And then you mentioned as far as you know the goalposts are changing. So I know Gray was just asking about races that you've recently done, but what are some of those? I would say those uh, those big, hairy, audacious goals that you have right now. What are some of those? big things that you're looking forward in the future, I'd say maybe within the next two years that uh, that's kind of on your docket right now, Nick. 
Uh, probably my biggest goal now that I've been selected for the Tokyo Games um, would be to make the final. Um, and if you'd asked me last year, I thought there's no way that I could possibly make the final just because I was really struggling my performances. But I had a race back in March where something, whatever happened, the race went out really slow for the first half of the race. And I actually felt amazing because of that because, I, as I said, I'm struggling in races that go out too hard at the start. And I end up closing as good as I ever have. Um, and so in the right type of race in a semi-final at the Olympics, I think I can still um, potentially run well enough to make the final. And that would be an awesome way to end my um, my days as a 1,500-meter runner at the Olympics. It would be my fifth game. So, um, yeah, that. but even if I don't make the final, I won't, won't, won't be upset. I'm pretty proud to have qualified. But that's what I'm working hard towards now. Um, maybe if I give a marathon a go, that could be another um, audacious goal. But to be honest, I don't want to, um, after this year, I don't really want to prioritize my running over other interests um, with my family stuff and other hobbies and stuff that I've got going on. So I'll still run, but I'm, I'm not going to make it the number one priority. It, it won't be one that I would be willing to make too many sacrifices for. Got it. The yeah. Olympics. Marathon's a big marathon's a big transition. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, if I do a marathon, that, I'd, it would only be for another six or seven months after the Olympics. It wouldn't be like for another two or three years. Fair, fair. But honestly, like in my role at Tracksmith, I um I manage several programs within Tracksmith, but one of the primary ones that I do is I manage our elite program called the Amateur Support Program, and we have 115 athletes in it. And I've been interviewing many of these athletes and having chats. And what I'm learning is that distance runners are much more capable of holding um, full-time jobs or careers because even though marathon running requires a relative um, high amount of time putting in the mileage, you can get your run in whenever you need to. Like if you have a nine to five, you can get up at 6 a.m. and get your run in. You can run after work. You can run at lunchtime. But if you're a sprinter or a field field eventer, like there's a lot more, um, there's a lot less flexibility in when you train because you're more dependent on facility access, on coaching, the technical elements and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it seems to be a much higher percentage of those athletes are having to work side hustles or part-time jobs until after their career is over to then until their athletic career is over before they can start pursuing their professional career. Um, so that's been something I've, I've learned, which is quite fascinating. Well, you actually just segued perfectly into my next question. I was going to ask, um, you know, now that you're no longer, you know, professional and stepped into more of the quote unquote amateur uh, side of the sport, you started this position with Tracksmith. How did that come on? How did that come about? Uh, I guess it started off was when I had the the opportunity to um, either seek out another sponsorship um, renewal with my current sponsor Adidas or with another brand perhaps. Um, my wife actually first came out with the idea maybe we could use this as an opportunity to get your foot in the door for your post running career as well, um, a way to get my resume to the top of the the pile so to speak. Um, because I guess for the last 10 years, there's like been a little bit of anxiety of like, is anyone actually going to accept me in the real world? It's one thing while you're a runner, but what, what am I going to do afterwards? Um, and we were very fortunate that um, several years earlier, about three and a half years before this took place, um, 
the CEO and co-founder of Tracksmith, Matt Taylor, was actually a customer or client of my wife and I's um, with this um, online coaching business we had called um, Mile Method, where we helped train athletes train for the mile for six weeks. And so we developed a, con- a connection with him, and he invited us to the grand opening of their um, Newbury Street store, which opened three and a half years ago. And we went to that, and with no thought in mind. But then when I when I came up with this idea of maybe seeking to use my running as a, a stepping stone into my career, I reached out to Matt first, and um, and he offered me a full time position um, in a non traditional way of of them managing things, and so. Um, I thought about it for about seven seconds and I said, this is exactly what I want. It'd be, it'd be perfect because there's a lot of flexibility to still be able to prioritize my training, but I also um, can can learn from one of the, the best up-and-coming brands and um, there's a lot of things that I've been wanting to do within the sport to better it. And Although I think relatively highly of my ideation abilities and ways to execute um, um ideas i i know that there was a lot of areas that i'm lacking and so i wanted to better learn um and partner with the companies that already had a lot of that ability to to activate on so yeah it's that's exactly how it's worked out and i've been near a year now and it's it's been a lot of fun to um to both learn but also have a positive impact in the sport through this role yeah, i love the tracksmith their their style is, is pretty neat i've been tracking that for over the last I don't know, year. How would you describe the style of, of Tracksmith, Nick? Uh, the best way to describe it is a timeless aesthetic. It's okay. not necessarily trying to chase current trends, but like a style that you would be proud to pull out of your closet in 10 years' time and you're not going to go, oh, my goodness, did I really wear that 10 years ago? <laughs> so what you're saying is not a lot of neon. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely not. That's right. Um and it's, it's something that you can wear for your workout, but if you finish your workout and want to meet out with friends at a coffee shop or a brewery or something afterwards, like that, you as long as you chuck cover up your half tights and chuck on a pair of pants, like you're not going to worry with how you look. Like, and especially as someone now in my late thirties, like I'm not looking to stand out from the crowd, right? But I I, I want to look appropriate given the circumstances but but have some class to it as well and so i think that's that's really the aesthetic that um the tracksmith has been doing for many as well before i was coming on and it's it's fun to learn about the the processes that go into that that's not really the area that i specialize in um that's more um the product and the creative team and i'm in the um more the sports marketing side of things um but it's it's been really fun sort of involving our athletes more and um that, that's that's something we're looking to do a lot more as well. So, yeah, I'm really excited. Okay, so Nick Willis, the fashion model isn't the next step, and I guess is what I was... Uh, definitely not a fashion <laughs> model. Right? Well, so, I might be able to put one foot in front of the other decently fast, but um, I, my running form when I'm jogging looks horrendous. <laughs> when I'm going fast, it looks fine, but like for photo shoots and stuff, my legs are flailing and my arms are dropped and like, there's not, there's not a lot of symmetry to my running. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed to not see you on the website or, you know, I was looking, I was like, where's Dick? <laughs> so Gray and I were, we're into, we're also shoe geeks also. I, I wouldn't, I mean, there's a couple of brands that I am dedicated to just because the way they fit and feel and, and some of the memories I've had in, in, in these specific brands, but your weapon of choice. Oh, yeah. So what, what's your current weapon of choice? Your, your, what's the, the shoe right now that 
that that you just love and when you put that on or and and the one that hey, what's the shoe that you anticipate on wearing in in Tokyo uh for training in uh, anything i get given for free i love to wear to be honest Those are um, great. Yeah. I, as as someone who ran in bare feet for most of his life and still walks around in bare feet for most of the day like last night when my 3 year old is biking up and down a street i'm running on concrete in bare feet um did I, when he was riding around on his bike i was chasing him in bare feet so my feet are pretty resilient, so I can wear pretty much anything, um, so long as it's pretty neutral. Um, so it's been fun um, having the freedom to wear whatever. Um, I've, I was extremely grateful for my time. I eight years with Reebok and seven years in Adidas, and I still think really highly of the, the boost um, form that Adidas came out with. And if I, if I had some brand new ones of those, I'd wear them, no hesitation. But right now, I've I've got a couple of Puma shoes that I'm rotating and I've got a couple of New Balance as well and I've been um, trying out a few different spikes as well. But yeah, I, I'm not too fussy so long as something is... See, I, my heels never touch the ground. Even on a 20-mile run, my heel doesn't touch the ground. I try, but it's just... I've got um, bone spurs in my ankles, apparently, x-rays have revealed. Um, so I must have been doing it ever since I was a little kid because... I used to get made fun of because when I sort of walked around, I bounced around. That's because my I can't get my knee to dorsiflex over my toes because I just don't have that flexibility in my ankles. And, um, yeah, so I just want shoes that don't have a ton of weight in the back because I have no use of that. My heels don't touch, so why have it all of that extra loading there? So something that's more neutral fitting is, is ideal for me. Yeah, definitely. So we could, I feel like we could probably do a whole nother episode just because I'm sitting here like mouth wide open. You're, you know, prospective Olympian here in a couple months and you're running down the street barefoot. That's just, I'm mind blown. Um, <laughs> and it must be really hard for you to find shoes. Um, maybe it's because I run down the street barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. But, uh, but Nick, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It has been an awesome conversation. Uh, we definitely wish you the best of luck in Tokyo. We'll be uh, we'll be rooting for you, and, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All the best. Thanks, Nick. You Thank enjoy. You, All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again to our guest today, Nick Willis. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview. I know we had a lot of fun talking to him. Um, super inspirational guy. Uh, really cool to hear how you know being a father has affected his training and his you know the way that his, his the mental side of his game has changed uh, over the last twenty years. So again, thanks to Nick Willis and thank you to you, the listeners, for checking us out. If you would like to check us out on social media, we are at Two Dads Run Podcast on Instagram. YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you can also reach the show at two dads run at gmail.com. We each have our own personal email accounts, gray at two dads run.com and Kevin at two dads run.com. And I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>